Excuse me. This morning, we are going to reflect on the significance of the Christian life being grounded in Christ's death and resurrection. Our life in Christ is essential in our walk with him. We prepare for communion this morning by considering how the Christian life is the result of partaking in the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. We partake in those benefits by faith. The key verse is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We begin this morning by looking at the means of our life in Christ. The Christian life, oddly enough, begins with dying with Christ. Our life in Christ is uniquely tied to our death with Christ. And so Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. The phrase, I have been crucified with Christ, speaks of the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, he died for our sins. And what I want to stress this morning is the personal pronoun that is given in verse 20. It's extremely important. Seven times in the ESV, eight times in the King James, we have the personal pronoun in verse 20. Seven times. Notice with me, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is the, the focus upon the individual's unique relationship to Christ that is in view. Now, there must be a balance that is maintained when we think of Christ's death on the cross and for those whom he died. There are two distinct aspects of the death of Christ as we think about the recipients of the benefits of his death. There is the individual aspect concerning those for whom Christ died. Jesus died for me as an individual. He died for me. He died in my place. When Jesus died, he did not die for a faceless humanity. He did not simply die for the human race. When Jesus died, he had specific individuals in mind. People that he knew intimately. People that he knew by name. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, Christ died for you. You were on his heart and in his thoughts. He was dying 
for you. But we also must understand that Christ died for us collectively. That is his people. Christ died not just for me, but he died for all those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. He died for me, he died for Paul, and if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, he died for you. That is, all who are believers in Christ. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. For many. So when he died, he had you in view, but he had all of his people in view. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And then goes on to say in verses 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So Jesus died for me, you, individually, and he died for us, all who have a saving relationship to Jesus Christ. Why that is important is because the point is what is true for Paul is true for us if we know Christ as our Savior. Paul's experience is not the exception, it is the norm, it is the rule. Paul's experience is the experience of every single believer. Everyone who knows Christ can legitimately put their name into this verse. Everyone who has placed faith in Jesus Christ can say, I have been crucified with Christ. I live, nevertheless not I, but Christ. And Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is your testimony this morning if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So we need to keep that balance in view and maintain. These truths are wonderfully portrayed in the communion service. The personal aspect of Jesus dying for me and you as an individual is seen in our individual partaking of the elements of communion. As the plate is passed by, you will pick up the bread and you will eat of it, symbolizing your faith in Jesus Christ who died for you. As the plate is passed by and you pick up the cup, you will drink of the contents of that cup, which represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you. And as you individually partake of that cup, you are expressing your faith, your confidence, your trust in Jesus Christ's death on your behalf. The corporate aspect of communion, that truth that Jesus died for us, 
all who know the Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior, is portrayed in our taking of communion together. It is in our corporate worship that we all are taking of that bread. We are saying together, as the body of Christ, as the people of God, we believe in Jesus Christ who died for me. And as we wait, and as we partake of it together, so that we're not individually eating, but as we corporately eat together, we are bearing witness to the truth that Jesus died for us. For us. And negatively, as the communion table is limited to those who have professed faith in Christ, and there is a warning not to take of communion if one does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, is again a demonstration of that reality that Jesus died for us, the people of God. Since we have died with Christ, we have been made free from the law's demands, that I have been crucified with Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, verse, 10, verse 13, it reads, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon the tree. Jesus died as a sinner because of our sins. Our sins were placed on him. The wages of sin is death, and so he died. The emphasis is on the sin-bearing act of Christ. He was crucified in payment for our sin. In particular, as a result, the obligations and consequences for failing to fulfill the law of God have been paid for by the death of Christ. The demands of the law have been met. They have been satisfied through the death of the Lord Jesus. So it reads, I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be justified based on their good deeds. We will be saved solely on the results of death of Jesus and his resurrection. The manner of our life in Christ is what is next. What does life in Christ look like? When Paul states that he no longer lives, in verse 20, says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He's obviously not talking about his physical life. He's still alive physically. He has not died. He has not fallen over. He still moves. He still lives. He still breathes. Paul is saying that he no longer is relying upon his own good works or the life that he lives as the means of obtaining eternal life. So now he's been made alive apart from the law. Galatians 2.19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. He's living now his life 
to the honor and glory of God. To the honor and glory of God. He died so that he could live to God. But in what sense has he died? He has died so that the law no longer has power over him. In Romans chapter 7, we are given a general truth. Do you not know, brothers, or I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives, right? So as long as a person lives, they are bound to the law. But when they die, the law no longer has any jurisdiction over them. They no longer have any responsibility to the law. When you have died, you don't have to pay taxes anymore. When you have died, you don't have to worry about whether your car is parked in a certain spot where you're going to be ticketed. When you die, your responsibilities and the demands of the law upon you cease. That is what Paul is saying when he said that he died with Christ. The demands of the law have ceased. He is no longer obligated to fulfill the law of God for Jesus did it for him. The obligations to the law do not extend past death. So when we are crucified with Christ, we are no longer under the obligations of the law. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would no longer be enslaved to the sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin, its power and its consequences. Furthermore, not only has Paul died in respect to the law, but he has also been made alive with Christ. Notice verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive to give her with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So that when Jesus rose again, when Jesus lived again, that risen, that resurrection life is now a part of our experience. When Christ rose, we rose with him. Just as when he died, we died with him. When he rose, we rose with him. Ephesians says we are now in the heavenly places in the sense that our eternal life is secure, and our eternal life is not future, we possess eternal life now. John 17.3, this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. We have eternal life. 
When we die physically, we will pass into the very presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For we have risen with Christ. His life has been imparted to us who know the Lord Jesus as our Savior. And as a result, we now have the ability to live a new and different spiritual life in Christ. Colossians 3.1, if you then have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not of things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have life. You have life that is imparted by Jesus Christ. As Christians, our lives are lived under the direction and enablement of Christ. Notice verse 20 of chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but now these words, but Christ who lives in me. Under his enablement and under his direction. Our spiritual and physical lives are totally dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrected Christ gives us life that is new and transformed. We still exist, but we are a different person. And there is such a dramatic change in us when this new life is imparted that the Bible uses some extreme metaphors to try to teach us that truth. For example, one of the metaphors to have this new life in Christ is to be born again. To be born again. It's as though you've been born a second time. A second time. And so, in the scriptures, we often find that believers are given a new name. We talk about this new life that they have in Christ. A Saul becomes a Paul. A Cephas becomes a Peter. For they are a new, transformed individual. Another metaphor is we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things are passed away and all things become new. There is a totally new experience that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul addresses the transformation that takes place in his earthly existence, in his earthly life. Now living a life that is governed by faith in Christ. Paul's testimony is given to us in Galatians chapter 1, in which he reads, for Galatians 1.13, for you've heard of my former life, my old life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me on the road to Damascus. He encountered the resurrected Jesus. And 
new life was imparted to Paul. And when that new life was imparted to the Apostle Paul, he changed. He changed. He was no longer the one who was persecuting the church. Now, he was the one that was proclaiming the very gospel that he initially sought to oppose. So now he lives this new life by faith in Jesus Christ. This faith is trusting Jesus in all things. His trusting the, his acceptance with God, trusting in Jesus' ordering his life in the wisdom that he parts, in the watchful care that he provides. His life is now lived to the honor and glory of God. Then thirdly, we note the motivation for our life in Christ. Why is it that we live a transformed life? Why is it that we live a transformed life? I think this is going to be the most important thing I can say to you this morning. It is not to obtain or earn the love of God. Rather, it is because he already loves us. Let me say that again. We do not live a transformed life in order to obtain or earn the love of God. But we live this transformed life as a response to the love of God which has already been shown and given to us. Christ loved me when he died for me. Notice Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. There's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Now these words, who loved me. Who loved me. Note the past tense. It's not who loves me, although he certainly does. And it's not that who will love me, that I now have this opportunity to somehow gain his love and his respect and make myself worthy so that now he's going to love me. But he loved me, past tense. Again, Romans. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Back then... He loved us. And if you go to Ephesians, even before the foundation of the world. So we live to his honor and glory, not because we have to, but because we want to. It's our response to his love for us. Not to earn it, but to demonstrate that appreciation and to recognize how worthy he is of our living our lives for him. Not only did he love us, but it says in verse 20 that he gave himself for us. And I want you to note the active 
element of this verse. He gave himself. This, this is an activity on the part of Jesus. He didn't just die. He gave himself. And Jesus did not simply give. He gave himself. And I want you to think about how significantly different this verse would read with one simple preposition. I want you to see what this does not say. Galatians 2.20 Who loved me and gave of himself for me. Doesn't say that. To give of himself would have spoken of something in which he gave up. In some way, he limited himself or brought hardship or difficulty to his own life. It speaks of a willingness to suffer or to lose on our behalf. For example, there are many things that Jesus gave of himself in our salvation. Most notably was his leaving the very presence of God and coming into this world. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. He gave of himself. He limited himself. He became like a man. And Philippians 2 goes on to say, not only to become like a man, but as a man he became a servant. And as a servant, he was humble and obedient even to the point of death. But what I want to say to you this morning is he did not give of himself, he gave himself. Meaning that there was nothing more to give. He gave himself in totality, unreservedly. He held nothing back. He gave everything he had to give. He forfeited it all. And when you think of that forfeiture of all, think of his life, yes. But even think of the fellowship that he enjoyed with God the Father when he gave that up on the cross. With those hideous words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer to that is because he was bearing our forsakenness. He was forsaken so that we could be accepted. He was forsaken so that we could be welcomed. He bore the wrath so that we could bear his righteousness. He gave himself. And that attitude, that purpose, 
of him giving himself for us dates back to, I've said repeatedly, before the foundation of the world. But even as you think of his earthly life, Jesus always had before him the conscious reality that he was going to die for his people. He knew that from the get-go. Romans, excuse me, Hebrews, chapter 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, consequently, because the sacrifices of the Old Testament were not acceptable and could not take away sin, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written in the scroll of the book. He said, a body was prepared for me. I came to be that sacrifice. He understood it. And he lived his life under the constant knowledge that he was going to die for us. He gave himself. He gave himself totally. He gave himself without restraint. He held nothing back. In John chapter 13, the night in which the Passover has suffered, the night before the crucifixion, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He loved them unto the end. And we can understand that word end to the uttermost. To the uttermost. Even as they sat around and bickered. Even as he knew that Peter was going to deny him three times. He loved them. He loved them to the very end. To the very end, to the uttermost. He could not have loved them more than what he loved them. And he could not love us more than what he has already done for us. The Father, it says, he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? One person has said, he who gave us the best, will he not give us the rest? All of our hopes, all of our aspirations are in Jesus Christ. As you partake of communion, I want you to reflect on his love for you. And what is our response to that love? We live for God not because we have to, but because we want to. Because we realize how appropriate that is. He is worthy. He is the God of creation. He has made us. And not only has he made us, but he has redeemed us. He has bought us with a price.
We love him, 1 John 4.19 says, we love him because he first loved us. It's the response. So in Ephesians, it says this, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That should be the pattern. That should be the response. We walk in love because of his love for us. How in the world could we fail to love him? And as we reflect on his love for us that was without limit, that was total, that was completely sacrificial, that he held absolutely nothing back from us, isn't the appropriate response to give him our all. To hold nothing back from him. Not to give of ourselves, not to give our talents, not to give our money, not to bring limitations on our lives, but to give him ourselves. That's what Romans 12 says. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, as you consider God's mercy and grace to you, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, King James NAS, which is your spiritual act of worship. Meaning, it only makes sense. It only makes sense. As we go to communion this morning, may we rededicate our lives, the living to his honor and glory. To be able to say that we have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, though we die, yet we live. And the life which we now live in the flesh, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. May that be the explanation for the transformation that has taken place in our lives as we partake of communion. Let us make that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask our brethren to come forward at this time. And as they come forward, I invite all who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior to partake in communion with us. You do not need to be a member of this church, but you do need to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, not because of any rule that we have but because of what Jesus taught us concerning communion. But let me just say to you this morning, there is no reason why right now you can't place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And once again, I plead with anyone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, please, please, acknowledge him as your Lord and your Savior this morning. That you might partake in the benefits of his death and his resurrection. Let's pray. Almighty God, we pray for your spirit to work among us. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, that today would be that day in which faith and
trust is placed in you. And we thank you, O God. We thank you for your love for us and sending your son to die for us, collectively, your people, and for me, for each one who knows you this morning individually. Lord, thank you for your love and help us to love you in response for it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Brothers, if you would come forward, please.